Blog Talk Radio. For the Bobby Eaton Show, yeah. giving you information you'll want to know, speaking on issues affecting us all, and music for the soul. Yeah. It's the Bobby Eaton Show. Bobby. It's the Bobby Eaton Show. Bobby. It's the Bobby Eaton Show. Bobby. It's the Bobby Eaton Show. Hello, world. Hey, good afternoon, good evening, and like I always say, wherever you're at on the globe, welcome to the Bobby Eaton Show. This is where we tell our stories our way. And this is open mic. So all you got to do is dial that number 646-716-5525. And don't forget to press that one button if you want to talk on the air. Hey, I had an interesting day today. I woke up this morning and... Uh, uh, me and Ramal Brown, the hometown heat, we took a, a group of uh, JUICE members from Tulsa down to Muskogee, Oklahoma, because Muskogee, Oklahoma, they're starting a JUICE radio show down there. So we were all at the library and their JUICE radio show, along with Tulsa JUICE radio show together, and we were uh, sharing a lot of information back and forth, and you know, and it was nice seeing young people getting together and, and you know, shooting ideas off of each other. So that's the Juice Radio Show, Muskogee, headed up by Miss Erica Tucker and her crew. And hopefully, by the beginning of the year, we're going to be getting her broadcast up and moving. You know, she's got um. A uh, hotel down there that she's renovating, and she's going to put uh, retired veterans in those hotels, you know, housing for retired veterans. And I commend her for that. And that's a good thing, doing a good deed. So that's what's going on down there in Muskogee. Also, in Dallas, Texas, there is a Juice Radio Show Dallas that's getting ready to crank up with Miss Lauren Wyckoff. And she's going to be starting that up pretty soon. We're going to be trying to um, put Judio, Judio, Juice Radio shows all over the country. You know, we're going to be doing that. So if you're interested and you're listening to this uh, podcast, you can reach us at 832-443-9499. Again, that number is 832-444-9499. I'm sorry, 443-9499. And that's the number uh, that you can catch us up with. Or you can email us at eatonmusic2, the number two, at gmail.com. Can't remember all that stuff. Just Google the Bobby Eaton Show on any social media platform. You'll see it. Or the Juice Radio Show. Speaking of Juice Radio Show, every Thursday night here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Tune into the Juice Radio Show, headed by uh, from all the hometown heat, and uh, he makes it happen. It really makes it happen. Okay, moving forward, we're this is open mic on the Bobby Eaton Show, and you can uh, just talk about what you want to talk about. So we're going to take a break, 
and we're going to be right back. So stick around, okay? Searching for ways to grow your business? Or perhaps you would like to invest in Tulsa's African-American community? The Black Wall Street Chamber of Commerce is a great place to start. The Chamber was created to serve and increase the visibility of needs in our community. It is an umbrella organization for local businesses, the Tulsa Juneteenth Festival, BWS Black Women in Business, and the Grassroot Economic Development Fund known as BWS The Power Group. For more information about the Black Wall Street Chamber of Commerce or to donate to The Power Group, visit bwschamber.com. If your credit starts with a three, four, five, or six, this is for you. Did you know that it's costing you to have bad credit? You can't get qualified for that house or apartment and you're paying high interest rates. Along with paying high car insurance, and it may be costing you that job that you really want. What are you waiting on? Take more of a holistic approach. Pick up the phone and call the Credit Shiro at 832-642-1554 or text CAMP to 76626. With 13 amazing services, we restore and repair generations to come. Once again, call the Credit Shiro at 832-642-1554 or text CAMP to 76626. If you know better, you do better. Only the Credit Shiro can help you to save the day. KBOB, the home of the Bobby Eaton Show, the Juice Radio Show, and Two Dogs Radio Show. Yeah. I do it big. Okay. You better R-E-S-P-E-C-T me. Tulsa, Oklahoma. Stay connected and call us now at 646-716-5525 and press 1 to go live. Hi, I'm Denise Parker with Midtown Embroidery. We do it all from any type of promotional, from screen printing, embroidery, school uniforms, Greek lettering, workwear, monogramming. There's no job too big or too small and no location too far. Let us be your one-stop shop. We're located at 2808 East 15th Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma, 74104. Our phone number is 918-982-3254. Our email address is denise.tulsamidtown at gmail.com. Thank you. It's the Two Dogs Radio Show. Sports Talk has two new voices. Jerome and Young, Talk NFL, NBA, NCAA, and local sports. Highlighting legendary coaches locally and around the globe. Two Dogs Radio Show. Start. Break, break, break it it's the Bobby Eaton Show. We tell stories our way. And that's what we do over here on the Bobby Eaton Show. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. We got a, a, a what I want to say, we got a lot of shows going on. And we're doing a lot of community development and economic development. And uh, we're trying to train up our youth, get our young men active and Involved in stuff, you know, jobs and all of that kind of stuff. That's what we need to happen. Yeah, so that's a good thing. You know, today, Trump, embarrassment, you know, he's up in uh, 
And he's, he's just a fool. Let me see what they're talking about right here on Trump right quick. Let's see what's going on. Let's see what the conversation is. You that know, decision I'm, I'm to gonna, go complete my degree I'm, at WVU. Hold on one second, y'all. Let me, that MBA? Let, me, no let me get this together. We can, uh, these ads, you know how those ads go. Let's see what we got right here. Trump backtracks on Giuliani's Ukraine plot, you know. So they they blaming each other now. So he's like, hey, I didn't do this. House impeachment investigators getting specific. Democrats revealing how they will move from the Ukraine fact-finding done by Adam Schiff's Intel Committee to the Judiciary Committee. This is key because the Intel Committee has been the investigation. It's like the FBI doing interviews or gathering facts. Well, moments ago, Schiff's committee has shown how far they've come because they just released tonight the final interview transcripts. There's already a new revelation that we're going to get to tonight, a budget office attorney resigning over the entire Ukraine budget scandal, which is part of the Ukraine bribery plot. The Judiciary Committee, meanwhile, will pick up this case, and they're more like the prosecutor, evaluating the facts, scouring the evidence, carefully applying the law. Now, for every other person in America, you can think about it like this. A prosecutor decides whether there is evidence and law to support charges if you are suspected of committing a crime. For the president, in the rare cases when any of this arises, it is the House Judiciary Committee that first decides if the Constitution suggests the president committed a crime, be that something general like abuse of power or a specific offense, like we've reported here, treason or bribery. And that's the context for the other big story tonight. Late today, for the first time, the person who leads that effort in assessing the president's misconduct, Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler, laying out how they will do just that. And he has announced the committee's very first public hearing on December 4th. This is right when Congress gets back from Thanksgiving break. They will publicly begin the process of assessing all of this bombshell evidence and consider whether to draft articles of impeachment against President Trump. This committee will be weighing whether to impeach, and if so, how to impeach. Do you do one article? Do you do several? Do you focus like a laser on this Ukraine scandal, or do you bring in the other alleged offenses by Donald Trump? Committee can draw on experts and on people with knowledge of the facts. You know, Donald Trump famously bluffed his way through a lot of the Mueller probe by claiming he would talk to Mueller, but he never did. There were, of course, the famous written answers. Well, tonight, I can report to you that Nadler is calling that bluff right out of the gate, inviting Donald Trump or his lawyer to attend the hearing or question the witnesses. The offer is not technically new because under those rules that Speaker Pelosi and the House passed, lawyers were already formally invited. If history is any guide here, this is not just talk. Consider that President Clinton took up the House on their offer for his lawyer, who you see right here, to participate in the hearings. Clinton's personal lawyer even got to question their legal nemesis at the hearings, Ken Starr, who you see right there. Meanwhile, Clinton deployed the powerful White House Counsel's Office to appear. Ultimately, some of those government lawyers made Clinton's case in the House, as well as ultimately on the floor of the Senate during his trial. And then as now, there was the question of whether the president was misusing those government lawyers in the underlying offenses, Republicans alleging obstruction by Clinton, and they also had allegations about his White House counsel's office. Today, as we all know, Donald Trump's previous White House counsel is a star Mueller witness to alleged obstruction. That's been a court fight this week. The White House has lost, and his current White House counsel's office stuck right in the middle of this Ukraine scandal as these allegations of a cover-up pile up. Given all the breaking news, what I want to do is bring in our panel of experts on all of the above. 
I want to welcome Joyce Vance, a former U.S. attorney, Glenn Kirshner, a former federal prosecutor, and Maya Wiley, a former assistant U.S. attorney at SDNY and former counsel to the mayor. Uh, welcome to each of you. Uh, there's so much happening right now. I would like to get to all of it. Um, Joyce, walk us through what it means when Chairman Nadler says they're announcing these hearings. You have been a witness in the past uh, in that very committee. Then Maya, I'd like you to walk us through what it means that uh, Adam Schiff's investigators tonight say uh, they have uh, budget officers resigning over these issues, uh, the, the Ukraine plot. And then Glenn, when you're up third, and you know in baseball third is a good position, I want you to tell us what it means that Donald Trump is distancing himself from Giuliani tonight. Uh, starting with you, Joyce, uh, please. So we'll be heading into a new phase of the process. And it's important to remember that what necessitated the hearings in the Intelligence Committee was that there was no special counsel. There were no investigators who were gathering facts. So that's the mission that Chairman Schiff's committee has undertaken. Now they'll write a report. They'll send all of those facts along with their colleagues on the um, Foreign Relations Committee and the Oversight Committee for judiciary to take a look at. And as you pointed out, uh, Ari, judiciary will play the role that lawyers would play in a criminal case assessing the facts, looking at the law, and making a decision about whether there's sufficient evidence to indict. Except that here there won't be any criminal charges. There will essentially be a process that will determine whether or not the president gets to keep his job. So as we move forward, judiciary will look at the evidence and decide whether or not treason, bribery, high crimes, or misdemeanors have occurred, and if so, how to charge the president. Maya? Yeah, I think this is um, an extremely important and interesting uh, revelation because government lawyers have an obligation to the public, to the rule of law and the public trust. They don't serve an individual, they serve government and the people. And so if a lawyer, we heard from Fiona Hill last week that there were legal concerns about the freeze, uh, the OMB freeze on Ukrainian military aid. And that, if the, to the extent that there are government lawyers who believe it may have been unlawful, they are often faced with a choice, which is either to figure out how to distance themselves, get off the work, report it and whistleblow themselves, or quit. So we don't know what happened here, but that's the question is, do we have lawyers that are actually flagging and undermining a potential defense that Donald Trump might assert, which is that the freeze on aid was a legitimate policy decision that was lawful. And if a lawyer or lawyers say it's not, that undermines his defense. Right. And that goes to these two Washington Post stories. One, linking the call to the money, something that has already been obviously laid out in these hearings, but with more detail. And two, breaking here late in the day, these resignations, which could suggest uh, people inside who knew more than anyone else and said, I'm not going to go along with a cover-up. Two White House Your budget officials resigning expressed concerns about Ukraine aid being withheld. They're not named, but that's what a top agency official has told uh, these House impeachment investigators. Uh, and then, Glenn, uh, Donald Trump, in defense mode, goes to Bill O'Reilly late today, breaking now, and says, I didn't direct Giuliani. He has a lot of clients. He's been working in Ukraine for years. Uh, what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you, I think we were all surprised when we recently heard Rudy Giuliani say, you know what, um, I've heard that 
Donald Trump may want to throw me under the bus, but guess what? I've got an insurance policy. What I would recommend to Rudy Giuliani is he gather up all of the evidence that now constitutes that insurance policy. Because with Donald Trump now saying things like, hey, I didn't direct Rudy to do anything in Ukraine, you don't have to read between the lines to add Trump basically saying anything that was done that was wrong, improper, illegal, that's on Rudy Giuliani. So I think the message that is being sent is that Rudy Giuliani better be prepared to take the fall. After all, look at Trump's mm. former lawyer, Michael Cohen. He's in jail for a crime that he did in concert, in coordination with Donald Trump. Donald Trump is still sitting in the Oval Office. It sounds like Trump may be preparing to pull a Michael Cohen on Rudy Giuliani. Well, that, it's fascinating, Glenn, because as you just laid out, Giuliani's made comments that speak to that. Uh, SDNY threw the book at Michael Cohen, and Michael Cohen did cooperate. In other words, he flipped on Trump, but he didn't have uh, the smoking gun evidence to go beyond what was known, which was, yes, it was for the benefit of Trump, um, but whether or not he went rogue, SDNY, which is an aggressive office, they listed Trump as a, a beneficiary, individual one. Um, and he wrote the checks. They didn't necessarily go farther, although obviously if he wasn't the president, they, they might have. But Glenn, when you see this, uh, I will say in, con in, in context, Rudy Giuliani is a far more experienced practicing attorney than Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen uh, called himself a fixer. He didn't file a lot of motions. Giuliani, at least at one time, knew his way around. So do you think, Glenn, um, that like Michael Cohen, he could end up on the wrong end of this without any forethought to how a prosecution looks when he used to do them? You know, I think he could. And let's think about um, Michael Cohen's insurance policy. He had one as well. Remember, he had the tape where they were setting up the hush money payoff that ended up getting Michael Cohen a prison term, of course, because of the ill-advised OLC memo saying we can't indict a criminal president. That has never visited Donald Trump, at least not yet. So, you know, Giuliani may very well also have an insurance policy. We'll have to see what he meant by that. But um, I think Giuliani may end up on the losing end of things. One Maya? point here. Yeah, I think, uh, one, I think Glenn is right. But two, we, if you just look at the facts and what Lev Pontus is starting to say, he's already making statements that make it a little bit hard to believe that there was absolutely no discussion with Donald Trump. Now, we have to hear more, but the timing of conversations and public statements between, say, in May, when we um, hear that there's literally set on Fox News after a discussion that Giuliani had made about his public trips that he was going to take to the Ukraine on May 9th, and that he was going to, and he had talked to Trump about it, and Trump knew about it. So it's not as if there aren't also public statements that make Trump's statements just not credible, including yeah. from Trump himself. And this happens at multiple periods of time if we track the timeline between Giuliani trips to the Ukraine or conversations with Ukrainians and Trump public statements about the same conspiracies that he's been spinning and that he claims is just legitimate public policy at this point. So I think the relationship between those are all ones that don't really stand up very well just from a credibility standpoint. Well, and Joyce, uh, doing the legal analysis in, in response to the great points Maya makes, this is the, the part to remind us all that it's 2019.
And I, and I will point out the legal differences uh, between uh, President Zelensky and Stormy Daniels. A and the differences, among others, are that the Ms. Daniels' matter was essentially a private civil matter about an NDA. Whether it was done well or not, or fair or not, it was about one person in a private civil matter. Mr. Zelensky was about the foreign policy, appropriated funds of the United States Congress, uh, the use of Javelin missiles and $400 million of military funding, and the State Department. And so the big difference beyond the obvious would be, Joyce, that whatever side deal Trump and Michael Cohen had that really came down to a, a few tapes and their debates um, pales in comparison to the number of people to court Gordon Sondland who were in the loop on this. In other words, Giuliani uh, appears to have evidence uh, backed by Sondland and others that he was the point person, that it was on the authority of the president, uh, that Pompeo did know about it, as did Mulvaney. How much does the stacking of that evidence make Donald Trump's uh, claim today to Bill O'Reilly Super interesting about where his head is at, but not super credible with regard to the case against him. Here today is Tuesday, November 19, 2019. I'm broadcasting live from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I'll be uh, attending the midnight uh, event at Langston University uh, as they hit into finals weeks. But uh, coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered, uh, impeachment hearings took place today on Capitol Hill. We'll show you the latest uh, on the drama taking place there. Also, a Newsday investigation reveals rampant housing discrimination in Long Island. They have video evidence uh, that is extremely strong, folks. That is thing. We'll break it down with one of the investigative reporters. Also, Chicago's uh, Chicago's Black Caucus not happy at all for the lack of African Americans who have marijuana licenses in that city. Hmm, we'll break it down for you. Also, folks, uh, while we are focused on impeachment, Republicans have blocked the measure for HBCU funding, some 255 million bucks. I thought Donald Trump Republicans about HBCUs. Also, the girlfriend of Plano Castile is suing the mayor of Elysian, Minnesota, for his racist tweet. We'll tell you exactly what took place. Another crazy ass white woman arrested a black man for taking the trash out. And I give the latest on Colin Kaepernick and the NFL. Folks, the jam packed show. It's time to bring the book of Roland Martin Filter. Let's go.
this beautiful logo for my bike shop with Wix Logo Maker. Go to Wix.com Logo Maker. To start, I'll type my business name and my tagline, and I want my logo to be dynamic and playful. Now this. All right, folks, welcome back to Roller Martin Unfiltered. I am here in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, recording the event tonight was part of the Four Cares Initiative at Langston University. But uh, we want to continue our conversation today dealing with the blowback from Colin Kaepernick and the NFL. Uh, it was about uh, less than an hour ago I got off the phone talking to a spokesperson about what took place. Uh, they contend that negotiations were going very well with Colin Kaepernick, and it really was their insistence on having a video crew as well as them raising issues about this waiver that led to the derailment of his workout. Now, the NFL uh, sent me documentation that says that the waiver that they were presenting Colin Kaepernick had nothing to do with him not being able to sue, that it was about an injury issue. They also said it was extremely similar language to what he signed when he participated in the 2011, 2010, though, uh, NFL Combine. All of this has been going back and forth uh, since uh, what took place on Saturday when they had uh, something scheduled, when they had a workout schedule. They, uh, in, ta- in my conversations uh, with the NFL spokesperson, uh, I was told that they reached out to Colin Kaepernick's people uh, on Tuesday uh, that two NFL teams were interested uh, in working Colin Kaepernick out. Uh, but it still begs the question, why do they go through all of this for just two teams? I want to bring in my panel right now. Joining me is Kelly Bethea, communications uh, strategist, Teresa Lundy, uh, who's also joining us as a communications specialist, uh, as well as uh, Malik Abdul. He is the Republican strategist uh, who joins us as well. And so uh, first, uh, I want to start with you, Teresa. This, to me, was a was totally bungled from the beginning. Even though, even though my conversation uh, with the NFL, which was uh, on background, laying out these details, what I still don't understand is why go through this huge hoopla over a workout if just two teams were interested. If the two teams were interested in Colin Kaepernick, those individual teams, two out of 32, could have easily called Colin Kaepernick in for a workout. There would have been no need for this huge, this spectacle that it turned into. And so it still raises some alarms for me in terms of uh, what this was really, really all about. The Colin Kaepernick narrative where it's like they're trying to stay into their uh, advocacy and criminal justice um, uh, battle that he's going through with his uh, his own opinions um, and, you know, fighting the good fight with the NFL. But it's also also looks like it's trying to dispel rumors that he no longer wants to be in the league. And so when we see, you know, Colin and his entire team, you know, putting on this, uh, you know, um, this whole charade, I'll just say this whole charade that's saying, you know, he is back on the field. He is fighting the good fight with the with the post statement because this uh this this workout never went through. It just shows that he's still trying to stay relevant because again, the fight for him 
is to stay relevant and not to get back on the field. Um, I disagree with that completely. Uh, I disagree with that because um, we saw what happened when Nike uh, came out with their ads. He's very, he's very relevant. I mean, it's real clear. He's extremely relevant. The issue still here is why, Kelly, the NFL go through all of it to organize a league-wide workout if only a couple of teams made an inquiry, the NFL should have said to those teams, you are more than welcome to bring him in for a workout. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just to perplexed that two out of 32 would be interested, and then you would go to this huge workout. Yeah, it's, it's all for show, um, specifically on the NFL side, if anything, because um, – in terms of their interaction with Kaepernick and the settlement and all those things, if anything, it's the NFL that's trying to stay relevant in this situation because, like you said, Kaepernick is going to be relevant whether he's on the NFL um, roster or not. Um, if he gets in the NFL, he'll be really relevant in terms of his ability actually staying the course. Like, he has not deviated from his athletic ability at all if anything from the stats it looks like he's gotten better over the past three years that he hasn't been on a team um versus the nfl uh whose uh base whose money and everything has kind of been on the decline in the three years because of kaepernick so if anything the nfl had to put on face to you know look good for the public um regardless of whether there's only uh two teams but at the end of the day this uh, situation should just be a matter of either put Kaepernick on a team or don't. Don't uh, dangle the carrot before the horse and just act like, you know, this is going to be um, just enticing for him. He's just going to keep trying and trying and trying. There's going to be a point where he's not going to be able to anymore, and that's going to be the NFL's fault because he shouldn't have been kicked off in the first place. So um, I disagree with the uh, – I'm sorry? No, go ahead, go ahead. No, um, I was just saying, I, I disagree with uh, my colleague in terms of Kaepernick staying relevant, but at the same time, um, this, this entire predicament is just ridiculous. Either add him or don't. He's more than qualified. Put him on a team because that's what he wants. This is, Melik, this, uh, this is what it boils down to. This is what it boils down simple. Either you possess the talent to play in the NFL or you don't. And if you have massive distrust on both sides, obviously, there was a lawsuit here. But that's what it boils down to. I don't understand why it's this hard. Well, I, I, I don't think it's really that simple if we're talking about uh, uh, business. You know, yes, you may be qualified for the job, but, you know, there are other factors other than just your talent and whether or not you would get the job. And so, talk, Dad? And, well... Uh, I, you you could you could be a rapist and be very talented but and not have a job in it. Well, well, I'm I'm using that as an example of why. No, but there there could be any there could be any. We're rolling. Before you go there, no 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 hold on no no hold on, Melly. You use an example of a player who has committed a crime. There are players in the NFL who've committed domestic violence. They're still in the NFL. Yeah, black players. Colin Kaepernick. Oh, mm -hmm. hold on. Colin Kaepernick has never been arrested. Nope. Colin Kaepernick 
has never been in trouble. And so what does it say that the NFL is very easily willing to give somebody a shot who beat a woman as opposed to a guy who took a knee? Well, that's, that's been a consistent conversation in the NFL, in the sports industry in general. In Colin's case, you know, I push back on your notion that somehow because he's talented, that that means he, he's not guaranteed a job. And I think that that's what a lot of people well, first are of all, no, 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 hold on, Melly. No okay, one is I'll, guaranteed. I'll no, 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 no one is guaranteed a job. But facts are facts. If you are better than two-thirds of the existing quarterbacks of the NFL, that means that you are being purposely denied. So, yes, it's not about talent. And that's the point. Well, no, it's well, it, for the most part, the you know, overwhelming majority of the discussions about Colin haven't been that he's not talented enough to play amongst the rosters of players that they have out now. The question is whether or not he's guaranteed a job. So for months leading up to this Saturday, no. for months leading, leading up to this Saturday workout, what we've seen from Colin is him posting on social media, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Well, he had the opportunity on Saturday, and you spoke with the NFL yourself. So this isn't second, third, you know, third-hand information. No, I, 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 well, 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 I actually spoke with both sides. Okay, and, 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 the, and you spoke? And, and, and the issue is that Colin Kaepernick's team said that the waiver was an issue because they felt as if they would not be able uh, to file legal claims later. And well, numerous and numerous lawyers, not even in, on his side, say it would be legal malpractice mm -hmm. to have your client sign that waiver. Well, that okay. Well, that 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 the waiver is an issue. That's something that's on the legal side. But we don't even have to talk about the legality of the waiver or anything. Actually, How actually, actually, you do because that was a point. The reason that we got to move forward. But Roland, that 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 is a that is part of a larger story, and what we're talking about with Colin Kaepernick, it's not just no, it's not. Just, well, no, yes, it's it not. is, Roland. The waiver, no, it's not. The waiver was the reason they chose not to move forward with the workout. You're, it's you're not a larger how, story. How, how waiver, you started the waiver. The waiver is tied directly to the workout. How you started the how you started this segment is talking about why would the NFL go through all of this if it really was about two teams? So to add no, to act, no, 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 no. Okay, I mean, I'm just I'll just let finish my. Point. I laid out several different things. I was told no, no, no. I'm telling you what I started with. I started with laying out what NFL spokesperson told me that covered a variety of areas, including two teams, including a uh, videotaping including the waiver. Right. So That's so like, there so it wasn't so it's not just sorry. about so it's not just about the waiver, which is what I just said. It's not just about the waiver. It's a couple of issues here, but you said that it was only two teams. Well, they said based on what they told you, they started out with two teams, but apparently weren't there 20 or so teams that were actually going to be there? So it's not like they just stuck with the two teams. They actually went even further and invited more teams there who were willing to participate. And on the subject of and on the subject of the, um, you know, okay. the video crew, the, I don't the know. Point, is the it, point is still is this. Is it normal? Is it normal for players to bring their own video crews when they're first, um, first doing all, a workout or all, a combine? Is that first normal? Of all, first, of all, first of all, the NFL conceded there was nothing even normal about this entire deal. And it wasn't. And that, so you can't. You can't even use the word normal because there was nothing normal about it. It and wasn't, so, but is that, 
the bottom line is this. But if we're complaining while he's that he's being treated, no, 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 no go through all of these different negotiations before announcing the workout. So that you don't think no that sense. Colin aired at all? You don't think that Colin aired at all? That no, everything... I think that I, I said that the problem with this whole issue was from the outset. How it transpired, the short window, all of those different things, that was the fundamental problem. Teresa, you want to make a comment before I go to my housing story? Go. Yeah, I was going back to my original point. This is all to stay relevant because Anybody, if we're involved in a legal situation with uh, Colin Kaepernick's situation, that this should have been handled early on. It was not handled early on, thus caused the um, cancellation on Kaepernick's end, which means to me, it just shows, yes, being in PR, this is a stunt that we, we do uh, every day for different types of clients um, where we have to um, start to see what makes sense and how, to, how does the client stay relevant in that cycle? So now we're... But it's not, but, but, but it's not, but it's not even the client staying relevant. The, I absolutely the NFL, Teresa, the NFL. Because I bet you... No, no, the deal. It's about him going out and doing their, you know, training up right. to the workout. Being woke. He was woke. No, 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 no. Hold on, hold on. First of all, first of all, his camp said they may put on their own workout at the NFL meeting in Palm uh, Palm Beach, Florida. Guess what? They can't say they're not going to be there. Let me go to this next story, which is a huge story. Uh, we often have talked about housing discrimination. This, of course, Fair Housing Act was signed 1968. And you hear people say, oh, my goodness, racism has gone away. But guess what? Newsday did an investigation that revealed extreme racism taking place by real estate agents on Long Island. They found widespread, separate, and unequal treatment of minority potential home buyers in minority communities. 240 hours of secretly recorded meetings found that Asians were discriminated against 19% of the time, Latinos 39% of the time, African Americans 49% of the time. Here is one of the secret meetings. I don't know about that. I have to get used to this about um, that because I've been running like a dog. I know. So I really need that. I won't take out anyone unless I do have a pre-qualification letter. So I need to so that means that I can't pre-qualify for a mortgage. Oh, so that means I can't go out to see anything. I won't. I won't do it. You can try another person, but I don't have the time to uh-huh. do that. Uh-huh. Okay, I'm just going to take some notes and. somehow was eradicated in the housing industry. 
Um, oh, how you doing? Good to be with you. Um, yeah, the results, uh, you know, speak for themselves. The numbers that you indicate uh, are what we found after doing more than 100 tests. Um, we counted 86 of them, and uh, what you see in those numbers are exactly what we found. The video clip you showed uh, is an example of us trying to be as transparent as possible so that uh, the test results that we found can be uh, examined by anyone who uh, wanted to look at Newsday's website and uh, see exactly what, what occurred between the tester and the agent. And um, to look at those numbers, to see that African-Americans face the most discrimination um, really makes it plain that the reality of black folks, and what people have to understand is that housing is where most Americans are able to build their wealth. So black people, by being discriminated against when it comes to buying a home, that is impacting the economics and the future wealth of those black families and their children and their children's children. Uh, that's true. We, we found that as well here in our, in our investigation. One of the things we found was that uh, if you looked at uh, in a particular uh, neighborhood where an African-American would typically uh, get a home, compared with uh, an area next door here on Long Island where a white uh, person might end up. Um, when you look at the difference in appreciation rate between 1990 and 2017, over those years, that amount of money adds up to $50,000. So um, it definitely has an impact that, you know, makes a difference in people's lives. When you think about your home, it's you know, probably the biggest investment uh, that you have, the biggest asset. So um, the practices that we were able to uncover in the uh, current district treatment um, uh, has an impact, like you said, uh, down the line for uh, perhaps generations. First of all, uh, how expansive was your team? How many people did you send out? Uh, how many people did you eventually um, uh, talk to and come across? We um, engaged 26 uh, testers to do matched pair testing. Um, so we sent in one tester of, uh, of uh, black or white or Asian, um, mostly uh, people of color that were matched with a white tester, and we did 86 of those that we counted. So matched pairs would give us results based upon how the real estate agents treated one side of the test compared to the other side of the test. And the video clip that you showed um, allowed us to make transcripts to compare uh, exactly what happened on one side uh, to the other side. Uh, as part of the investigation, we collected uh, over 5,700 listings. The real estate listings allowed us to uh, get the address of where the homes the agents uh, where they suggested that the white tester look at a house and where the minority tester look at a house. And once we find those in defenses tracks, we started to see patterns where um, the neighborhoods that the minority testers were getting tended to be more diverse than the neighborhoods that the white testers were getting. And uh, you gave a good summary of the numbers of the findings there. But indeed, African-Americans suffered uh, most of the disparate treatment that we uncovered in this investigation. Were people on your team, were your editors shocked with what they discovered 
were there people who believed that this stuff really did exist? And, and uh, how did this um, series, this expose, even originate? Was it based upon a complaint? Uh, how did it all start off? Well, uh, it started, obviously, more than three years ago. When the owner of a newspaper, Patrick Dolan, apparently had a conversation or lunch with one of the people who works in the fair housing field here on Long Island who indicated to him that there apparently is a problem with uh, agents uh, providing fair and equal service to all their customers in the community. And, you know, keep in mind that uh, we're here on Long Island, which is one of the most segregated metropolitan areas in the country. So um, as far as being shocked, um, you know, it depends on who you talk to. Um, members of the staff here at Newsday who happen to be people of color uh, didn't didn't seem to be too shocked by what they saw, which you, you can imagine, because many of them have stories about either being steered to a particular neighborhood or treated uh, unfairly in their own house. Search. This is, of course, uh, uh, again, a, um, a stunning expose. Uh, we certainly appreciate uh, your work and the work of the Newsday staff. Uh, this is also why investigative reporting is, is important. This is why local newspapers matter. And so I uh, would certainly hope folks there in New York will be very supportive of Newsday uh, and uh, what uh, y'all are doing there. Where can folks uh, see the full report? Your <coughs> question, not uh, Keith, where can folks see the full report? Oh, yeah. Go to newsday.com, all right? And uh, what you get, you get a link. Uh, you get a link there that takes you to all the stories. There's an excellent documentary on there. It's long. It's 40 minutes, but it's worth every minute of it. I advise everyone to take a look at the documentary, which really does a good job of encapsulating the entire story. But, you know, read the stories, too. There are plenty of them to read. Each one details exactly what happened in each individual. All right, Keith Herbert, we appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Uh, Kelly, uh, this, the point there when you talk about um, places where black people are being pushed to live, losing out on upwards of $50,000 when it comes to reselling. That is how redlining impacted black people. That's how federal housing policies impacted black people. And for people who have this silly notion that these things don't exist, it is still existing in 2019, meaning black folks are being cheated out of being able to create wealth because of the color of their skin. But it's not just housing, right? I mean, almost every aspect of living in America has been uh, racialized. Um, housing is no different. Um, it is unfortunate that this is still going on. Um, I live in D.C., and you kind of see the effects of policies like this every day, um, especially with the gentrification going on in the southeast, uh, all four quadrants, really, and just seeing people just lose their homes or not being able to get the homes that they want because of real estate agents like this. It's absolutely disgusting. Um, it's happening all over the country, and you can see the evidence of that by the way um, who's buying houses, who's losing homes, um, how wealth is growing in this country or isn't growing in this country. Um, I am very anxious to see the full report. Um, that'll be something I do when I get home tonight. Um, but from what 
I just heard, it's, it's just really sad because there should be no reason for it. There is no real reason for uh, us to not be where we need to be just in order to live. Um, um, I, this shouldn't surprise anyone. And it's interesting if we think about um, the pre-crash um, you know, of 2008, 2009, if we actually think about that, you know, the number, we were talking then about the housing crisis, we were talking, the foreclosure crisis, we were talking about predatory lending, predatory lending that largely affected black and brown people. So here we are, so many years later, still talking about an instance that's kind of closer to home in New York City of all places, not in Mississippi, not in Texas, not in Alabama, Louisiana. We're talking about Long Island um, and New York. So this really isn't surprising, but I, I, you know, like with Kelly, I actually look forward to seeing the full report. But whatever they can do to remedy the situation, you know, in New York, they need to put pressure on Cuomo. They need to put pressure on you know, um, the mayor of Long Island, I don't know exactly who that is, but they need to put pressure on those politicians and they need activists out there who are engaged on these sort of issues to make sure that we're not continuing to get shorted when it comes to issues like fair housing. You know, whatever violation, federal government needs to take over in that. But Teresa, the real pressure needs to be on uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development because they are the ones who should be sending in testers. They're the ones who should be eradicated. This is a violation of the Fair Housing Act. That's what this is. The owners should not be on a newspaper do the work of HUD. I agree. And uh, um, Secret- uh, Secretary Ben Carson, or I think, is he still over HUD? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, guess what? You, you, never, you never know, but... Right. <laughs> yes, he is. He is, for now. Good. Okay. So, right. So, him um, and, and the rest of his uh, um, bureau directors need to really go in there um, and analyze and take some of that budget, really get into those communities, really contact those elected officials, um, and let them know that there is a plan and a budget to be put in place if they really want to combat that. If, if the Trump administration wanted to do anything, anything to kind of, you know, uh, start to change the narrative uh, outside of what it is now with these impeachment hearings. This is something that they can absolutely do, and this will get the attention of media, but I will hope more so it starts to change some of the perceptions, um, not only in in Long Island, but um, in other uh, states that, you know, going on across the country. All right, folks, that's really appreciated. Hold tight one second. We come back. Uh, We're going to talk about Chicago. Black folks not being able to get medical marijuana licenses? Really? In Chicago? That's next, Roller Martin Unfiltered. You want to check out Roller Martin Unfiltered? YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roller Martin Unfiltered. See that name right there? Roller Martin Unfiltered. Like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And don't forget to turn on your notifications so when we go live, you'll know it. All right, family, it's almost time. The holiday season is my favorite time of the year. And whether you celebrate Thanksgiving, Ramadan, Christmas, Kwanzaa, or New Year's, this is when you think about spending time with the people you love most. This is also the time to count your blessings and support those less fortunate and look at how you can have an impact on their lives. 
Well, I have the perfect opportunity for you to be a holiday hero and have a major impact on other families. And here's the deal. Right now, hundreds of thousands of Americans are sitting in jail without being convicted of a crime. Why? Because they lack the financial resources to pay their bail. Now, think about it. If you are arrested for any minor offense, you'll be taken directly to jail. And if you don't have bail money, whether it's a few hundred or a few thousand dollars, you will stay there until a court date is scheduled. That could be days, weeks, or even months. Now, America's bail system is broken and has created a two-tier system of justice, one for the rich and another for the poor. Folks, freedom should be free. And that's why the Ebony Foundation has partnered with the Bail Project and is sponsoring the Home of the Holiday Campaign. Now, with your help, the goal is to bail out 1,000 people by New Year's Day. Now, a donation from you today can change someone's life tomorrow. And this is critical because people of color represent upwards of 90% of the jail population across the country. Now, when folks stay in jail, 90% of the people with misdemeanors end up pleading guilty because they want to get out of jail. However, when bail was paid, 50% of the cases were dismissed and less than 2% received a jail sentence. Sometimes justice needs just us. To join the fight to be a holiday hero, you can donate 25, 50 bucks or more to help the Ebony Foundation bring our brothers and sisters home by the holiday. To donate, go to homebytheholiday.com. That's homebytheholiday.com. Please support them now. The Black Caucus in Chicago wants to stop marijuana sales until this summer. Why? Because they want more Af- more opportunities for African Americans. Chairman Jason Urban says there are no African American participants among the 11 existing dispensaries so far. The question is, who is going to get the first shot at the market during the first year of legalization? Caucus members voiced their concerns, which allows existing program which allows which program which allows existing dispensaries. It said recreational marijuana beginning January 1st and to open a second location, saying it did not go and do enough to lift up communities most harmed by the war on drugs. Um, this, um, Melick, has been an issue that I have raised. We saw this in Maryland. We've seen this by the Black Caucus in New York, where African-Americans are saying that the people who have been most impacted by, by communities ravaged, by people going to prison because of marijuana, African-Americans should be first in line when it comes to getting these licenses. But what we're seeing is that's not the case. And so I think that this, this, is a, this is definitely not isolated to Chicago. This is definitely a national thing. If you look at the jurisdictions, the states that have actually legalized um, marijuana, whether that's Colorado or Vegas or California, uh, Maryland, and even here in the district, the conversation is we've always had these conversations about what type of benefits will, as far as, especially as far as licensing, will that be equity for um, blacks, if you will? Um, some places do it a little better than others. I think D.C. probably does it a little better than others because we do have um, a couple of black-owned dispensaries here in the district. But as far as a nationwide thing, I don't know if I necessarily, even though I, I support blacks getting licenses and things like that, I don't know if I really understand the argument as far as the linking communities that have been impacted by, I guess, marijuana um, crim- criminalization of marijuana laws. I don't know if I understand the argument that the um, city of Chicago or some of the people in Chicago are making about how people, how communities that have been impacted by the, uh, the legal, the, the um, people who've been impacted like ours, people who've been impacted by the marijuana laws. I don't know if I under necessarily understand what they mean when they say 
equity from that point of view. I support dispensaries, but I don't under, I don't necessarily understand what they mean when they say communities impacted by these marijuana laws. Where, how so, they Teresa, Teresa is not real hard to understand. African Americans, significant number of people still sitting in prison for selling marijuana, and you have whites in America who are reaping the financial benefit of marijuana now being legal. It ain't that hard. It isn't hard. And actually, here in Pennsylvania, it's two parts that's a disgrace. One is how the licenses were given out here. I think there was probably one African-American firm out of 30 that was issued licenses. Um, And then, two, we still have, especially in PA, so many prisons uh, and counties across the Commonwealth that still have those who are in prison for marijuana have not been released yet. And so what they say is that it goes by county to county issues. So yes, this is a a, a huge um, portion of mass incarceration and criminal justice reform. But it's it's so interesting to see when this is happening to black and brown people that again the white people are now capitalizing. They're capitalizing again when we're in prison and they're getting the check, um, and then they're getting the check uh, for legalizing it. And the people who were it's so interesting. I, I can go through this whole thing, but it, it's really astonishing. Um, I don't understand why, you know, look, look, Kelly, if you've had communities that have been adversely impacted by when marijuana was illegal, why not say those folks should be first in line for dispensary? I mean, that should be the solution, right? Not only should that, I think it should be uh, a couple layers to the solution. Um, not only should the communities impacted by, you know, the war on drugs and uh, criminalization of uh, marijuana, not only should they be first in line for these licenses, but the uh, convictions of those who were, who are imprisoned because of said uh, legislation and laws retroactively should be expunged. Um, so I feel like that would be true uh, justice in that situation because it makes no sense for you to have this decriminalization of a contraband and the people who are in jail for that same contraband, even though it's no longer uh, illegal, they're still in jail for it. And frankly, they shouldn't have been j- in jail for that in the first place uh, because of you know a slew of other issues. So the fact that Chicago has this problem isn't surprising to me because it's uh, across the United States uh, for the cities who are in the process of decriminalizing marijuana. But at the same time, a part of the solution to the dispensary licensing as well should be retroactively uh, expunging and in the process of expunging rather the convictions of those in jail for the uh, exact same action that people are profiting off of. Yeah, I, I think Kelly raises a good point, but I, I think we're also conflating the, what's happening around the country, and, and it's really happening, the decriminalization of marijuana. That's one thing, but if we're talking about licensing for dispensaries, that's a totally different thing, and I, I'm more so of a proponent of let's make sure that people, you know, black people actually get these licenses rather than black people who live on it, like whether people who live in Southeast DC or the South side of Chicago have access to these licenses. There are places not, I, I want black people to be able to get these licenses in white neighborhoods. So it's not just in black the... neighborhoods. I, when, oh, so when okay, you say community no, 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 impact, no, no, no. This, this is not about neighbor. Kelly, go ahead. Uh, 
like I think uh, Roland and I are about to say the same thing. It's not necessarily about black people in certain neighborhoods getting these uh, licenses, but they should be prioritized because the, le- the, the criminalization of marijuana started in those communities. So what is the best way to rectify the, the impact of that, you know, frankly, racist type of, of criminalization? The best way uh, immediately to try and rectify that is to make sure that those communities have first dibs on those licenses, not saying that they must get a license for that community, but the opportunity should present itself to those communities first so that they can try and rebuild what was broken by way of the criminalization of something that should have been criminalized in the first place. But are we talking, are we talking, are we talking marijuana licensing just black people in general or <laughs> communities that have been affected by it? And so, for instance, the South Side of Chicago, certain parts of New York City, certain parts of, you know, Washington, D.C. Are, are we talking about that? Like people in Ward 8, Ward 7 and 8 Well, it just so happens those are predominantly black neighborhoods. Um, right. I don't think that you can just say, hey, you black person, only you can have priority over this license. I mean, I'm pretty sure there are laws on the books to say that segregation and, you know, racial discrimination in that regard is wrong. But the principle still stands that the, like you said, Ward 8, South Side of Chicago, Baltimore, what have you. These are predominantly black areas in major metropolitan areas. So if you say, hey, this area gets first dibs, what's going to happen? Likely, very likely, that black people are going to get those first. And that is what the opponents of said uh, solution are afraid of. Do you not, Melanie, do you not see what the issue is? Well, and, and again, that's why I said I think we're conflating, or maybe I'm just totally misunderstanding. No, 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 because, no, because because I support. Oh, so you're totally. I think you're totally missing it. I think what we're saying is that if you have, look, it's not hard. This is not hard at all. And that is, what group of people has been most impacted by marijuana law? Black people. Mm-hmm. What we're saying is that now that marijuana is becoming legal in these states, worldwide, it's a $340 billion industry. Who should be first in line to benefit economically from the legalization of marijuana when the people who were first in line for the war on drugs, communities that were ravaged and attacked, black people? Okay. Now, if that's the argument, then no, I don't agree with that. Overall, I agree with setting aside whatever type of point system or something to benefit minority black and brown communities. I absolutely support that. And as I said, there are, city, there are um, cities around the country that have been focusing on that, particularly Washington, D.C. And I think that's why in Ward 8, in the ward that I live, I think that's why we have a um, black-owned dispensary in Ward 8 now. So I totally support the notion of Ward 8. But as, but this notion that somehow communities, you know, because black people have been impacted most, then that's why we should get, you know, first dibs on um, licensing. I kind of push back on that. I don't think, I don't see that as the reason why we should it because our communities have been impacted. I'm, I'm talking about an equity argument. We should be at the table, period. Whether we were impacted or not, this is a business. Yes, it's a, but the equity argument is that of anybody who is most impacted, by marijuana laws has been black people. Yeah, but I don't I don't agree Teresa, with I don't agree Teresa, with the impact. Teresa, argument. you get this, right? 
I absolutely get it. And and Melly, it's this this it's a bit interesting to hear that point of view. I I'm I'm totally agreeing with you that, you know, we should all be at the table. But again, since we were the ones that still, you know, elected officials, uh, Republican elected officials, white ones at that, are still getting their piece of the pie first, and probably in their district, because I said probably, because I don't know if, that, if it's actually true, but they probably have individuals and constituents in their district who are probably still in prison right now because of a marijuana charge. Right. So for me, if that person comes out of prison after serving a time for a marijuana charge, you would think an apology happens and also a lead to the front of the line to now get some equity back on that if their plan is developed properly. Now that now that part I don't agree with because people were locked up, then those people who were locked up or who were affected by marijuana laws should get first up for the charge. Yeah, but but even right, but being locked up for a charge that should not give you first dibs on marijuana licensing because at the time that you were incarcerated, marijuana was illegal. You know, depending on where you were, marijuana was actually um, illegal. That's the basis of our point, and 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 the point is because you stole lives and stole years of my life, so it could be from five to ten when it was illegal. Now that there has been epiphany that it is legal, there should be some sort of conversation, compensation, really, and, and some more equitable reasoning. That's the only way you fix the solution, and that's the only way you come back to the table saying, okay, you know what? We're sorry. Here's the compensation. Now go ahead and grow since we stole your year. Well, now that, I don't necessarily... Let, let, hold on, let, hold on, hold on. Let, let, you know what? Let, let me just go to the next door because this gives me a damn headache because I don't understand why this is so hard, but I'm going to need Miller to explain why in the hell city Republicans uh, can't pass a simple damn bill to give $255 million uh, to HBCUs and other institutions. Now, of course, it was passed by the Democratic Control House. College presidents say the funding is vital to fill the pipeline of minority graduates flowing into STEM professions. But days before the funding expired, Tennessee Senator Lamar Alexander, Republican, the chairman of the Senate Education Committee, he decided to block it. Education Department, they said the money for the current appropriation will carry over into the next year with the uncertainty surrounding it. How hard does this, Melly? Uh, I mean, it's not like Republicans in the Senate are doing a hell of a whole lot. Uh, they're not taking up any of the damn bills Democrats have passed. And so how hard is it to pass a damn bill to fund $255 million for HBCUs in other schools? What I've been reading. What the hell is your party doing? What I've been reading about for the past several weeks since this story first broke is, um, from what I understand, is that the Republicans actually want to pass a permanent funding mechanism for HBCUs. What Democrats want to do, they want to, I think it's a stopgap measure or something, for a two year. So it's like a two year extension of, well, I can't think of what the act is now, but they want to pass. So we have Republicans want to a permanent solution. Democrats want a two year extension from where we are now. Actually, so, at, at, actually, let me, actually, let me give you the facts here. The Democratic House has already passed the bill. Right. If the, the Republicans, House, the if the Repu- if the, if the, yes. Yeah. I'll say this, this is not hard. Republicans could actually, pro- could, could actually approve the House bill 
and still introduce another bill to make it permanent. Well, you if, can do two things at one time. Well, sure, but if we're going to be fully, if we're going to be fully transparent and, and informative um, here, what we have to also acknowledge is that the Republicans actually said, "Well, hey, we want a we want a permanent funding mechanism for HBCUs." What they've also said is that as part of that funding mechanism, it's tied to reforms in the Higher Education Act. What Democrats are concerned about, they're saying that, well, if we pass this now, if we go, because what the Republicans have, even what um, Senator Alexander introduced, he actually added to that program where he's talking about, you know, um, the federal student aid, you know, making the, the financial aid form. Uh, more user-friendly, if you will. So they've talked about reforms as part of the Higher Education Act that are actually bipartisan issues. Republicans are saying, hey, we want a permanent funding mechanism for that. And as part of that funding mechanism, we want to add to that reforms in the Higher Education Act. They're not saying that they don't want any funding or anything like that. The Democrats are saying, well, no, we want a two-year extension from where we are now, and let's come back and deal with those reforms in the Higher Education Act. It's not as if Republicans are saying actually, that... Actually, actually, Kelly, what actually what's going on here is, <laughs> is you have one bill that's been passed by Democrats. Republicans want to, want to deal with several other issues. What Democrats are saying is this $255 million bucks, which $85 million of that will go to HBCUs, Democrats are saying, yo, deal with that as a separate issue. Versus... No, 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 no. Follow me. Let me say it again. There's a difference between saying let's do this huge comprehensive deal, which we know has many tentacles, has many different pieces to it. What I'm saying is Pass a simple, clean bill. That's all they got to do, Kelly. This ain't hard. And to Malik's point about the comprehensive plan that the Republicans are trying to uh, roll out, that's not necessarily a bad idea. But to your point of that plan, Roland, having multiple tentacles, who's to say that the House bill that just uh, came through, um, through by the Democrats isn't one of those tentacles. So for the Republicans to deny uh, on the Senate side this bill uh, truly passing is pretty despicable. Why? Because $85 million, I, I think that's the number that you said, $85 million for 105 HBCUs is virtually nothing. Comparatively speaking, we talked about last week how Maryland is... Uh, basically fighting over half a billion dollars just for four schools, and you're talking about $85 million of 105 plus. I mean, we're, this, this is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous, and it's petty of the Republican Party on the Senate side to hold up that little bit of money for some for an entity, uh, 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 an entity within higher ed education um, to use. Um, it's, it's okay, we're going to go to the phone lines. We've been talking about this uh, marijuana licensing and impeachment hearings. Let's go to the phone lines and see what we got here. Area code 314-381, you're on the Bobby Eaton Show. Yeah, Bobby, it's Pianchi. How you doing? How you doing, man? What's going, going on with fine. What you want to talk about, this is open mic, and we've been talking about a variety of different topics, man. So what's your topic well, you know, tonight? It, it sounded like uh, either Roland Martin or, that was speaking. It was. And on the issue of the $85 million, 
I would like to see that $85 million go towards school choice where parents can put their children where they – well, you know what school choice is all about. Yeah, yeah, I would like to see that too. You know, but yeah, you know, sometimes sometime we got our priorities messed up, man, you know. It, yeah, you are because the, the uh, schools that these young people are coming out of are not preparing them thoroughly for college. Well, and that's where they stumble. For, they're not preparing them for life. You yeah, know, that's, that's where they stumble. That's what it is. Now, as far as the, uh, what are you talking about, the marijuana laws? Yeah, marijuana laws. You know, well, for I don't people have... who've been, they were saying for people who've been incarcerated for years should get some type of reparation or some type of something for a law now that's already legal. So I don't know how you feel about that, you know. Do you think they should give them something or compensate them for locking them up or should they release them? Now, or should they just finish out their sentence? Well, if they marijuana laws, I think they have reduced the sentence that individual who was convicted in various states have sir. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. as far as when you convicted, when there's a law against your activity, I don't think that you should be compensated or rewarded after you get out because the law has changed. And I'm gonna give you an example. Look at prohibition. When alcohol mm-hmm. was illegal, they didn't do that on alcohol. But you know, there's no, a didn't. town right outside of Chicago where the city council, and I can't think of the name of that town, has said that the taxes that's going to be derived off of recreational or medicinal or marijuana is going to go toward providing reparations for the citizens of that town. So that should be interesting to watch. Yeah, it should be. I wonder what the reform is going to be on these marijuana on the marijuana laws, and because up here in Oklahoma, man, we've got an abundance of dispensaries just popping up and opening up everywhere, and there's so many opening up that people are starting to rob them as well. Oh my goodness! What is this yeah. because they can't put their money in the bank, huh? Man, I guess so. Because man, they're starting to rob some of them up here, and I'm like, <laughs> because man, it's still a federal crazy. law against it. And that's mm-hmm. another problem, too. Anyone that's been convicted on marijuana laws, you have uh, ridden yourself out of certain jobs and certain professions, uh, teaching, uh, aviation, and uh, also uh, owning and possessing weapons. Oh, for sure. So, uh, yeah. But anyway, well, you know, we're in a state, we're in a state where you have open carry now anybody can carry a weapon right now it don't matter who you are as long as you don't ha- you're not a felon and you pass the background check you're good to go i don't see nothing wrong with that matter of fact i think it should yeah. be more of that that way people would get used to seeing it now uh, of course everything has its ramification but uh, you should be able to carry a weapon according to the constitution well bobby well, you have a nice thanksgiving man. i know you're going to tear into this food Man, hey, I'm gonna try to do what I can. You too, man. Enjoy yourself, you know. I sure will. Thank you very much, sir. All right. Talk to you later. Bye bye. Okay. Great. Hey, you're on the Bobby Eaton show where we tell our stories our way every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, six PM Central Standard Time. And on Saturdays from twelve to two. And uh let's see. 
Won't be a Juice Radio show tomorrow. It's Thanksgiving. We want you guys to enjoy your families and your your friends and eat plenty of turkey and sweet potato pie and all of that good stuff going on. You know, whatever you do, macaroni and cheese and stuff like that. A lot of ball games will be going on. So enjoy yourself and enjoy your family, you know, as well. It's all about family. So enjoy. I think I'm going to chill out tomorrow. I started to go up to Arkansas and visit some family up there, but I think I'm just going to, you know, stick around here. Got invited to several places. I might hit a couple of them. I don't know what I'm going to do. Play it all by ear. Well, we're going to cut it short tonight. You know, um, it's uh, 7 by 7.15 here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, home of Black Wall Street. And so we want you to take care. And until next time, have a good one.